what we're going to start with is worried about the boy from 2010. And let's talk about a subject we'll probably keep coming back to over the next hour and a half, which is research. Can you both talk a little bit about defining a very specific period of the 1980s? Well, with Boy George and particularly the Blitz Club and uh, that world, um, that was was difficult to piece together because there's no real... um, there's no books on it. There's no, there's no real reference about the interiors. Um, so we we started our we started from the premise of um, going to his autobiography. Uh, there's two books that he wrote, and there's descriptions of the Blitz in there, and there's description of his digs, and it describes what was on the walls. There is photographs, but the photographs were really difficult to, to look at because there were people and you just had bits of the background and it showed bits of posters and really it was piecing it together with Nick that we mm. got the, the, the geography of the Blitz club. It was to my way of my mind and this wasn't thinking of the production was I wanted it to be as accurate as possible because there is a kind of media there's people who were around at the time who are still around now and if you do it correctly, you do it as accurately as possible, certainly with this world, is that they will believe the story. Hence, I was really adamant that we had to, have the, we had to reproduce the Blitz exterior as it was. Um, and I remember, I think it was, I think it was the producer said, we don't need to do that. I said, no, we do need to do that. I wasn't going to be moved on that. So um, it was all of that detail was really, really important. And I felt it was really, you had to get that. You had to get that so that you believed George's story. It got to the point where actually George actually came up. He came up to look at the, the digs. Where he, and he, he said, God, it really is exactly what it was like. And he gave me, he's a huge man. He's big. He's about six foot something. Or he's like a bear. And he came giving me this hug. And I kind of got lost in him, really. Because it kind of was great. It was like... Um, but it was really, really important. Research was was key. What did you you end up scanning every Just, photograph? Uh, looking at a lot of terrible quality photos and trying to figure out what what everything was. And and it's funny that almost research in the eighties is more difficult than. Actually, yeah. this is something that um, a lot of makeup and, and hair designers have said as well. That recreating the Victorian period and recreating an older period is easier but when you're actually dealing with a period that people live through are still alive you realise just it's, it's not one single homogenous period they're tiny little changes yeah. each person's experience but is it's very people, different I mean, at, the, at the screen of it it's people like John York and he's a, you know, he's a cultural commentator and he can you can basically you can dish it right there and there but he didn't because we got things like the top of the pop sign the top of the pop sign you would have thought the BBC would have hung on to it's only in the 80s but they hadn't no, they had it. They just Did didn't they let us have it. I didn't want to let it. It was a BBC show. Because neon's really good. Oh yeah, that's true. So we yeah. had to go and get it made. Yeah. Um, but it's, but, it, but what, what was important was that it was the detail of, for example, they, they created a magazine that Mary reproduced, which is on the the right hand side, and. If you compare it to the original Blitz, is it the Blitz magazine? No, it's ID magazine. ID, ID. magazine, yeah, sorry. I mean, we, I love the fact that actually you can distinguish between ours and the real one. I loved all that. And it's getting that kind of detail. 
going for broke on that detail is, is something I really do. And again, these, these images as well. I've got to say, the, the makeup and the, the costume was stunning. <clears throat> it was, it was um, Annie uh, Simmons, who was the costume designer. Fantastic. And perhaps, Mary, you could talk just about the level of details that you created. Well, the posters, um, we had several, several scenes where he was just walking down the street. Um, like, so we had to have really, really long stretches of posters. And um, uh, yeah, costly. They were just recreated from old uh, Melody Maker magazines and stuff like that. Or, uh, we just got, they have like pages and pages of adverts. We just blew them up and uh, made them into posters, really. But all the dates and the, and the records are absolutely bang on for our story. Yeah. That, that's always important as well. People pick up on details like that if they see like a Gary Newman post or whatever. Um, they know what year that came out, so that always has to be bang on as well. When you're having discussions um, about the size of your budget, have you found, with your experience, that verisimilitude, actually getting it right, is, is one of those things that you might have a fair debate over? over. It'll be cheaper if you didn't get everything right, but doing that perhaps undermines the project. Really, I think that sort of with, with the money, we, we would discuss it, because we would discuss how much money you've got or, yeah, in your bit. And I said, look, I really want to go for it. Mm. We'll go, we will go for broke on that bit. Mm. And we'll pull back in somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, I think it's all a matter of what, you've, what you value, what you think where the money is best spent. And you, Mary will say, I, you can't afford it, Brian. <laughs> and the Boy George doll. Yeah. It's more bad. <laughs> It is a Barbie doll, and we just, they did it. produce them. Yeah, yeah. You did too. Yeah, they, it was like a. They did a really limited run uh, back in '83 or something, and it's a collector's item. And we found one on eBay. It was about five hundred pounds, uh, and obviously we couldn't afford that. So I had to sort of recreate it from those images on eBay and uh, sort of use uh, Douglas. Uh, and sort of use pictures of him, superimpose his face onto <coughs> pictures, and we customised a Ken doll. It's that kind of detail, because it's not in the script, but when you find it and do research, you've got, I've got to have that. And it just adds a kind of sheen of believability. So that was, that was great <coughs> fun to do. And all the, all the gay porn you had to research. It was midnight when I was no, reading okay. it. that's true. Yeah. It's interesting you say about the, the small points. Um, there was a documentary called The Hamster Factor that was made about the making of 12 Monkeys, uh, Terry Gilliam oh, yeah. film. And there's one scene where in the very, very, very background, there's a hamster and Gilliam insisted that the hamster has to be on the wheel spinning around yeah. and they just couldn't get this damn hamster to spin around the wheel. And he held up production, I think, for two days <clears> till <throat> they got this, or till they got a hamster that would go around the wheel. And Bruce Willis said, no one's going to see it. And uh, he said, but I will. Yeah. And everything else can be crap, but that's got to be there. Yeah, I kind of I I understand that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read an Amazon review of the DVD and someone mentioned the doll in the background. So, Can you talk about your own working relationship, how you started working, obviously, on this? We did Passionate Woman together. Yeah. And then this came out, this came afterwards, and I said, look, come and do this. Yeah. And we always start each job. The jobs that we have started, we... We start quite early and we talk about yeah. that. I usually give you the script and you. T- we talk about the graphics. We talk yeah. about. I always think that all that detail is really, really important. So it's yeah. something. That's, to me, it's 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 not something. It's an add-on <clears throat> that happens like two or three weeks before shoot. It's to me that's 
That's not right. It's integrated within the sets. It's integrated with the world because our world is graphic. It's, it's interesting because a lot of um, the BAFTA events that have been run in the past have been solely with HODs and they talk about what they do and then working with the cinematographer or the director. Yeah. And it's interesting hearing you talk now and, and outside a little earlier that you sound like sounding boards or you, it comes across you like sounding boards for each other. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I'd have a set decorator and I've talked to DOPs and stuff, but yeah. I think it's, you're, you're in a collaborative industry anyway. Um, but sort of like for example with Limehouse which that's so graphic oriented because it helps t- it tells the story I'm into I'm into getting it all that detail right I, mean, I think I'm probably a bit mad with that you know probably sort of um, but I am too so, <laughs> so it works yeah, quite well. <laughs> that's true graphics is often left last and it's rushed and it's photoshopped and all the rest of it and I don't really like that I like proper photo shoots with the actors and and setting out the stall with production very early on as to what the level of detail you're expecting to do we're going to segue into um, a project that um, Grant worked on which is Birdsong from 2012 and this is the uh, opening sequence Grant you specifically asked for that clip why oh yeah because, uh, no, I, it, would, it was really when it went on to next bit it was you cut to the the trenches and you, right it was um, i suppose what it, was, it showed the kind of the, the contrast between the two worlds this kind of preconceived ideas about the first world war and when i was approached about doing it um i remember the meeting i had and i said you know that the song was white and they said well, what do you mean and it's like i said well, sh- the battle was in the first of july it was a heat wave the first day and it was in chalk it was in a chalk landscape and so it would because you go to the Imperial War Museum there's a model actually there it showed the actual trenches they cut into chalk so it was white it was light and all the chalk was thrown over the top so I said well there's also a description of, um, of the Tyneside Irish going over the top and uh, red uh, years prior and it's a very distinctive uh, image that I had of this guy they, they, they were advancing and they were advancing into a white um, phosphorus cloud and uh, because of the, the shelling one of the guys was hit and he, and he fell and he looked up and he suddenly realised that all his his, his, his uh, comrades all his, all of, were slightly white because they were covered in white chalk and were going into a white Smoke and like were becoming ghosts before they became before they became ghosts because they didn't come back. The times I were decimated. I said to uh, Philip, I said, "Well, like, it's got to be white. We're going to have to do it sunny and sort of like so we kind of have a parched out look from the First World War, which is kind of very very different to people's expectations about what the First World War was about. They always see it's wet trenches, sort of mud. There is that in this, but essentially, it's, that's that's in Flanders, and this was." Uh, in the Somme Valley, which is slightly, which is a different part of France, it's that kind of detail. So by researching that detail, you begin to understand how to design something or give it a look that's very distinctive. And then you go to the French section, so that it's much more colourful. It's really richer in colours. And the whole thing is that that scene where he's thinking, watching, thinking, is that actually his past is much more intense than his his. Um, present because he's living in the past and that's a part of the book is that he still can't get over his love affair with with uh, Isabel, Isabel and um, 
that was kind of like uh, that was why when choosing the interiors it was it was also part of a singular point of the there's this kind of clutter of western culture um, especially sort of the, at the, 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 the at that point in 1900s is that kind of the west has become the, the west the, the western culture is just moribund it's now taking eastern influences it's it's in, it's in love with the japanese print it's, but it's actually kind of there's actually a statement there was a french intellectual who said basically it's there's going to be a sort of like cataclysmic event that's going to wipe it all clean and of course that it happened it happened about four years after this guy had written it and I thought, well, look, that, I'm talking with Philip, is that we then decided that that kind of, that when you see those interiors, it's like really kind of a rich reflection of what everything, it, of the intellectual world that's going to be kind of wiped clean by the First World War. And um, really then looking at that bit is that sort of everything you saw was completely fake. <clears throat> the opening trenches, the scene with the trees, all of those was planted, it was, it was, it was completely made. Uh, even the, the, the World War One number one wagon that goes right past and blurred, we we got built. We built it all. Every tree you saw, I got them cut and then transported in. I got transported chalk in a whole nine yards. And then the French interior, that that, that house. That's only half a house because actually there's all these all the bushes were all brought in, so it covered these phallic modern uh, sculptures. And then the other side was a was um, a building site that was being made because it was in the middle of Budapest then if you cut to the interior that was a post office that we cleared and brought all the, the, the props in so in a sense that's why I was it's interesting that, that we went all the way to Budapest thinking we'd find, find France and there was no French chateaus so we had to build it bit by bit so with that in mind and this isn't just about this but across uh, the whole of your career. Can you talk about the relationship that you have with the location manager and it, uh, I how... Say, I can't say but in Hungary I had any... I mean, there was, seriously, it was a nightmare. So it, 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 a lot of the time it's you building and not saying, let's go out and find this. The thing is about period. Is there's certain levels of period, and this is about class, is that, for example, um, if you're dealing with something like Peaky Blinders, yeah. it's about a working-class world. And that working class world, if you go to Birmingham, there were thousands and thousands, I think I've gone on record saying this, thousands and thousands of back-to-backs in the period that Stevens Wright written about. There's only three that remain. And you can't access those three because they're national trust and they don't look anything right. You know, they don't look, they're earlier. If you want to recreate the aristocracy, there's hundreds of houses still available to do that. They're ten a penny. But if you're going to do uh, lower middle class or working class worlds, they don't exist. You have to create them. And that's, the, that's really the hard facts of it. You could go to somewhere like Beamish, but it doesn't look, yeah. you want to transform it because it didn't look like that. And there's this kind of also this, this kind of um, sanitization of the past that it was all cozy, that it's safe, <coughs> and it wasn't safe. People didn't have three square meals a day. And the past is not a safe world. Sebastian was the person talking about uh, who sort of spoke about the tunnel. Yes, he was, a, he was one of the first to actually. The tunneling wasn't actually well known, and he was one of the first to actually researched it. I met him and I took him around the sets for a, for a, like a, a morning. I got him to go down that, that where where Stephen is winched, 
he went down there because there's a ladder as well on the other side of it. And he, he actually, he's a big guy, six foot, and they got him to go all the way down it. He was one of the first to actually research it at the Imperial War Museum. And it damaged his eyes, he said, because he had to keep looking at microfilm, you know, microfiche. And, um, and it was the only other, the other source that actually talked about it was a, it was a comic strip uh, in, um, called Charlie's War, which was done by Pat Mills and Joe Corkin. And they were the only two that were actually in the 80s that were publicly talking about the tunnels. It was, a, it was an obscure part of the First World War history. And it was after that that... Um, Historians and archaeologists started actually researching the tunnels and finding them, etc. They're still there, and um, sort of. Uh, I know that uh, Eddie and J- Joe went down and went into one, mm. and they were taken by um, uh, our historical consultant, who was, who was uh, part of uh, the research. And uh, so, yeah, we I had to recreate that. I kept basing it on the Great Escape. So we built it on rosters so that the camera could pan along. And it's very basic. You can go and you learn a lot from actually watching a lot of movies from the what I consider the golden age of cinema. So actually, this is interesting. You talk about The Great Escape and, uh, and movies. You've, you've got this weighty term written by Sebastian Fox uh-huh. that's a huge bestseller. And yeah. he obviously believes in a very specific recreation of an exact past. But at the same time... Yeah, one of the pleasures of watching that sequence is you have the aerial shot over the trenches rather than the Kubrickian shot through the trenches that happened so many times in Parts of Glory. How much of a problem was it to convince people to say, actually, I know this is what the audience is expecting of the trenches, but this is actually what it was? Well, what happened was I arrived uh, in Budapest and I basically had had a speed dating experience with the director at the Imperial War Museum that lasted about an hour. And there's this big model and I said, well, that's what we'll do, we'll build this. Or the budget kind of wasn't set the way I thought it should be set. And went out there, I did it over a weekend, and I, I basically drew it all up. And then we built a model. We built a huge trench. We, 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 the, the front line, the reverse trench, the communication trenches, all the way back to a base camp. It was like, what you saw there, we built. It wasn't CG. That's shot of them coming up and you see everything. That's not CG, that's real. But I said, it's Birdsong. It's some school curriculum. And yeah, I think Tim said, yeah, my, my daughter's reading it. Because <laughs> there's so much, yes, you're right, Past of Glory, yeah. very long engagement, watched it all. All the way back to All, all Quiet in the Western all Front. All Quiet in the Western Front, you know, yeah. Lewis Millstones. There's that kind of cinematic kind of approach to, to the trenches. But then if you start researching it, you realise the British trenches were rubbish compared to the Germans who were using... I can get into... I read about trenches. And we had the Imperial War Museum who came out, and you wanted it to be real. The more you research, you realise the British made sandbags out of curtain material. I didn't go that far because it looked like Kath Kitson. But it's, that's true. There's an, if you see the image of them, him hauling them up into the, the, the dugout, you see the graphics. It was like... They're bits, they look like they had the equivalent of Pirelli calendars of the period and the, the food tins. Uh, you know, we get all of that because what happened at the top of the trenches, which, which actually caused more rats, was the fact that they had their, their tins of food, they'd eat them and they'd throw them on top of the trench. So there was a line of food tins at the top. You can, you can take things so far, but then even if it is real, oh, yeah, you, you have I to... Didn't, I really stopped at, I stopped at the sandbags of curtains. <laughs> yeah, I get it, I get it. But it, 
I kind of I knew we got it right. You know, I think yeah. because the Imperial War it actually all came out in mass. We walk around the trenches. Well, can we keep these? We bring children out. You know, this is a fantastic resource. And they said, no, no, this is a sunflower field. It's going to get trailed back. It's going to get all demolished at the end. First of all, let's talk about the the scale, the number of sets, and and the graphic designs that you had to create for this series. There was about a hundred. There's about 130 sets in the second series, which in the first series was about 80. So it was, a, it was an up. But it was because the world was expanding. Yeah. Even, the, even the sets that were, for example, the, the, the bedding shop was changed because they'd expanded. They'd, they'd knocked through several other houses and it was even longer. And then, of course, his office, etc., which is a homage to the Godfather. Godfather. And to long days, it's, it's also basically you know, Neil's family home in Long Island. I mean, like for example, the, the, the position, the, the window, and slatted blind in the window to the desk is a reference to to Don Colleoni's office. There's also some oranges, um, <laughs> silly and similar death. With Mary's work, this was done very early on, and <clears throat> there's a description in the script about where Tommy's been since the last series is that he's, he's, he's moving into different circles so how to, shoot, how to show that and um, so there was this photo shoot that Mary organised and did and it was to get the flavour that he was moving into the aristocracy he's connected to the rich the only thing is that the horse, the horse I had an issue with the horse but that's me getting into detail <laughs> what was the issue with the horse? Too contemporary? Looking. Yeah, a little too contemporary, but, you know... The level of detail, the level of knowledge that you have to have for something like this. And, and Peaky Blinders is very interesting because it is located within a specific milieu, and yet at the same time it is a world that no one will know about in the way that they would the First World War or their experience of seeing it. So I guess there is a remit for using your own imagination. But in terms of research, do you, do you kind of start big, both of you, and then hone in? Or do you, you, do you find do you details think? that you work out from? With uh, those specifically, that, um, well, we just sort of researched um, uh, pictures of owners and their horses, and, and they had very specific ways of posing with the horses. It's, it's the detail in how people, which we'll get onto line out of photography, is that it's, it's the way people stand, it's the way people look. Mm. Um, for example, the first, in the first series, there's a there's very key shot of this above the fireplace of the three brothers and their uniforms. And it's really great because Killian really got it. He was, he was in and he didn't look at the camera. He mm. went straight off. And that was terrific because that's, all, that's what they did. They didn't look at the camera. They just yeah. photo, they look, look off. That's exactly how they did it. The, mm. cat, the horse was to the side. And we researched that and it was really great. It's great to get that right because it just feels right and you just put it in. And but then even more detail than that, you're coming down to telegrams... Mm. Yeah, a lot of it's just copying, really. You just find the original and copy it. But then, sometimes it's quite straightforward. But then, I'm I'm into that the the typeface that there's there's mistakes. Yes, yeah, yeah. I use a typewriter for everything, and um, which is hard work. Uh, But Grant quite likes it when there's sort of mistakes and stuff like that, and it's just it's. It gives it that sort of extra layer of authenticity because you can get typewriter fonts and all that kind of stuff, but they don't look quite right. And then typewriters leave a certain texture on the paper, and um, uh, it's that sort of level of detail. It's, it's getting right paper, paper and also the size of paper. 
obviously the, the Navi 4 and have standardised envelopes you have to make all envelopes from scratch like even the, the sort of stamps on there like the postmarks and all that the, the dates are as per the scene and you know I, I have a guy that always tells me what kind of stamp I need to put on an envelope and stuff like that. <laughs> I got a letter in March 1923, then trying to work out a budget from that. I said, that could take us all afternoon. Um, you have five minutes. <laughs> Is it budget, 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 budget. Budget dictates everything that you do. You know, if you've only got um, 40,000, you make your choices about what you can do for 40,000. But um, I think it's how you, it's how you approach the production right at the beginning. You know, it's, you know I'll, I, I will allocate my budget so that I get the right detail in certain areas and and I will happily not do things in other parts of it. So it, it, I know where I want the detail. I know where I'm, I'm going to... Uh, the, the, where I think it, it's, it's best spent. I think that's all very important that you know where you're spending... where, where you know you're going to... Get, you, you want that detail. Um... Mind you, I like it all over the place, so it's it's a bit difficult. I don't. I, that's a really difficult <laughs> question. I guess uh, I'm going to follow up with an equally difficult one because it's the one that BAFTA guests tend to sort of complain about whenever they ask the question. What's but um, prep time. Oh, I'm very. I'm, I'm straight down the line. I know exactly how much prep time I need, and I'm very straightforward with production about it. I think it's very key that you go in and ask what what is right, but that's only learned by experience. Hmm. I mean, when you're starting out, you sometimes have to take what's given. But I've learned that actually that puts you always on the back foot. And um, it's, it, it's never re- you never really win in that way. You never, I don't even win, but I don't think it benefits anybody. I certainly go in, uh, for example, with period, I know how much prep I'm going to need. I've worked that out over years. And I will now go, that's what you're going to need. I, I did it on Limehouse. There was this, I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying anything untoward by saying that. I remember I said, so we've got eight weeks. I said, no, you're going to have 12. And I got, I got 13. And I was right. Loads of micro-budget features now being made in mm. schemes. Yeah. And if you've got a film budget of 350,000, then obviously mm. your design budget is going to be commensurate. Minuscule. Minuscule. Mm. Have you got any advice for... The design is dying out. Say like a contemporary feature film. Well, contemporary is different to period. You know, there's different. There's you know, there's different. It's not a completely different ball game, but it's it's a different. You know, I've done contemporary when I started, and you know, it's like, look, everything's in the prep. Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. Our departments will then get chased around the houses. Everyone knows what cameras are. They turn up in the morning, sound, they get their equipment out in the morning, they wheel it round, and all the rest of it. Art department, they're kind of like being chased. Because you're the hare that's out, out front trying to get the next set ready. And it's really what the position you want to put yourself into. If you're happy to do that, then so be it. But sort of, I, my advice is to be straightforward with production. 
Because otherwise, what you do is you only cut your own throat. You put yourself in an untenable position. Yeah, you say, look, this is what I'm going to need. It depends on how much you want that job. We, you know, I know starting out when I was given worried about a boy, and it's like you've got this amount of prep and this amount of money. And I was going, crikey, okay, it's not a lot. Um, and I often say, well, which bit don't you want? You know, throw the onus a little bit back on them a little bit because their expectations are big, and you've got to make them realise that actually, say for example, their micro budget only allows you sort of like. I don't know, 50,000. And they've got this line that says the army comes over the horizon. Well, that could be your 50,000. You've got to say, that's great, that's fantastic, but let's, let's see which bit of the script you can afford and which bit you can't afford. And, and maybe we can't shoot it like that, maybe you can only do it against one wall. And, and they go, oh, no, 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 no. Well, that's the money you've got. You know, if you want to keep it on budget, that's how you're going to have to do it. So it's, it's, it's taking an intelligent view that you're, you're, you, you can make anything for anything, but it may not be what they want. Do you understand what I'm trying to, 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 to say? Is that, um, for example, in Limehouse, we only had a limited budget, but we had huge numbers of sets. It was sets like every day. Finally, I just said, right, you're going to have two walls. You're going to have three <coughs> walls. And that's, how, that's basically what you're going to have. And it's like, Stephen backed it because it, he knew that the money would, it would stretch to that and they got everything they wanted but it was like instead of four walls they got two walls they got three walls one comes to okay yes you can shoot it because invariably you end up not shooting the fourth wall anyway often things you, you dress six ways to Sunday and they don't shoot you don't see it there's this kind of safety net you know it's like because they, they haven't really worked it out but you've got to work it out it's being positive saying yes you can do it but there's going to be limitations within that and you have to understand that you can't have maybe the army isn't an army that comes over the horizon maybe it's something else maybe it's a sound effect and then they go oh god no we really want the army well then maybe go and find some more money and then they wriggle and they give you a bit more you know it's like every time you're it's, it's, it's like Christopher Nolan says you're in constant negotiations all the time so this is a starkly different scene um What's quite interesting about this, and it, it's a crew member's uh, question, asking about actors and the space that you create as a production designer for the actors to exist within it, and the discussions that you have with the director and the cinematographer, not just about that location there, but how people will move within it. Well, it's like, you know, it's like putting stairs in, in certain positions and doors. You know, you're creating entrances for actors and... Um, you know, the, the, with this, it was um, it wasn't written like this. It was it was written as an exterior. It was written as it was in a field, and um, they were, they had hundreds of cars, and I, we couldn't afford hundreds of cars. So I said, and I remembered the the, the, the horse of the year show when I was a kid, and I thought, well, what if we had it in interior? We don't have to spend all the money on the cars, and we only have maybe a couple of horses. But to give it scale, you're in this kind of great big space, and it's on the levels, and you're looking down. And this was actually a swimming pool that was covered. It was a Victoria, Victoria Baths in Manchester. They've got one bit which, which is covered over, and just put sawdust down. And then we looked at this, and Mary created all these graphics that were selling. Yeah, which is the thing that I found really yeah. convincing about this around the walls. Yeah, around the wall, and that tells you that you're in this kind yeah. of horse. Thing. So that was how they're that all came sort out. of horsey related. 
things as well. It's quite uh, hard to research those, actually. Um, I sort of went to a tiny little bookshop in a village outside Newmarket and rooted around this room for a few hours and found a little book of... Uh, it's like a bloodstock review or something. And had loads of little adverts in for, like, drenching appliances mm. and whatever they are and uh, uh, bloodstock insurance and stuff like that. It was very obscure, but it was perfect. And we sort of, blew, sort of redrew them, blew them all up, and they're all, all around, and, and we use them quite a lot. Yeah, we, we, we use them for the Derby. We recycle them. The Epsom Derby as well. Because we had the Derby to do. I mean, we'd run out of... <laughs> We're not having we did to run the derby money, in the but car we kind of like we did it in the car park just outside obviously. our offices. Yeah. yeah, but the thing was, if you base it, when I was looking at Wire Up, I thought, well, that looked really cool. So we, we it worked, and we only did one little exterior. I chopped it down into sort of like one exterior that we we went to. They went to Epsom, yeah. shot one of the older buildings, and then there was a there was the winter guy Liverpool, Gar- Liverpool. Yeah. and then we just had horses walk past a bandstand, so it looked like you got there and they were walking up into it. Um, I don't know if you had the same spell, but approximately what sort of budget would you have had for those sets? What, Peaky Blinders? Yeah. Well, yeah, not, 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 not enough. Not enough. The club budget or the budget for the um, horse show, you know, for those particular sets, could you be able to give us a ballpark? Well, I, I, I'm sure my mum would say, I think, I think the, the, the nightclub came in at something of the region of about, uh, I think it was about 60,000. And how much of it are you constructing yourself and how much are you like hiring in the props and stuff? Oh, all the props are hired in. Everything, all the furniture, all the lights, all the light fittings are brought in, the chandeliers. Uh, Essentially, what what you're using there is the the shell, the the walls, the colour of the walls, the the marble of the walls. Because um, all the dance floor, all the fretwork, the bar area, there was a kind of water feature all of that um, was all brought, was all made and put into it um, but it was it, it, it sort of and for screen time you do the thing about Peaky is it's, it's, it's there's so many sets but it's sort of, you can't you've still got to have the quality because it just doesn't it will, it will fall down you know you've got great acting there you know Killian is just mesmerising and you don't want it, you don't want it to look like it's just a painted backcloth there. You want it to do the, 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 the world is, you know, it's got to feel real, at least real within the context. Because it is a construct. I mean, you are, you are essentially creating a construct. It's, it's, and it has, but it's believable in its own, its own 60 minutes or 90 minutes or 130 minutes. And it's got to be believable for the, for, you, for the audience. And let's be honest, we're all very, we're all quite savvy. We know when something isn't right. Moving on to Beowulf. Perhaps you could both talk about the impact of visual effects with you, because you know, this, is, this is a series that's in many ways very visual effects heavy. I don't. I mean, so just, I would draw stuff. You know, if there was anything with CG, I would draw, and I would hand that over, and they would Milt would render that up. Like for example, the exterior of Grendel's lair and the rest of it. That's that's how I. I did, with the actual creature material. They were designed separately, and that is a separate entity. But it, when CG blends in, when you're doing set extension, then I'm all over it like a hot rash. You know, I really want because I see it's, you, you know, I will draw what that extension will be, and 
have quality control over that, and, and I, you know, I want to be able to sign off on it. These were early sketches, and I kind of like, I think that was the one I gave them and said, do you want that? And they said, yeah, okay, so well, it's going to cost you that. <laughs> but then coming down to like the, the banners, mm. and yeah. we'll see a shield in a moment. Um, again, slightly less real than, uh, obviously, than Piggy Blinders, but you are working this world that, that people have an idea well, of a kind to, of a world. It's down to the graphics on the horses. Yeah. I mean, it was, everything was made. I mean, the whole thing was, all the furniture was made. The beds were made. Everything was, we built, we got all the furniture built in Morocco by the guys who built for Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven and, and uh, Exodus. And we had everything shipped across. So everything you see from the swords to, were all, was all designed and made. And we did it in 22 weeks. So Mary, from your point of view... Um I, I, I'm just curious about the, the kind of freedom you have here when you're not dealing with a specific history. Mm-hmm. Well, um, for me, Beowulf was a bit of a, a dream, really. Um, so those are the sigils. Each tribe has got its own sigil, and, and they use them on their banners, and it's on their costumes and their armour and, and shields and weapons and stuff like that. So um, so we, we sort of we looked at old... Um, like the Sutton treasure yeah, and old yeah. um, po- uh, bits of pottery, like um, cave drawings and things like that, Car- wood carvings, stone carvings, stuff like that. And then mixed it up a little bit with like modern sculpture, like that horse is sort of based on modern sculpture of horses. And But it, it was really, really nice to not be sort of like so confined uh, by a period, which is often... Um, what I am it's, it's you know you have to do things exactly yeah. right and people notice if they're not and I wouldn't be happy if they weren't right so it was really sort of liberating to be able to um, I guess use your imagination a bit more and be a bit more creative following on from that the most recent project that yes. I'm aware um, Limehouse Golem again this is very interesting because you're talking about a more recent period of London that people have an idea of Victoriana but Peter Ackroyd's vision in his novel yeah, is a very it, very different yeah, world yeah because it's really interesting because the, I think it was Stephen who asked Peter Ackroyd what where, where did you base the, the musical on and he goes I don't know he didn't have a, he didn't have it based and the more you did the research on the musicals you realised that actually they were like pop up environments um, they were they were not what you thought they were mm. they, they, they were extraordinarily different and I think that's what's going to be really interesting about the, the film is that it's, it's not what you're going to be expecting and the, the level of detail that certainly Mary put in was really really key um, because it, it informs the narrative it informs because it's all about unreliable narratives and books and literature play a huge writing. part in it writing plays a huge part in it and um, I mean, this book, The Quincy. Well, yeah, this is sort of the key prop, I guess, isn't it? Like, um, it's it's sort of a piece of evidence, and Bill Nye is carrying it around the entire time, so it was quite an epic uh, challenge, really, to create a book from scratch. Um, It's sort of supposed to be from the film set in 1880. The the book's sort of from slightly before that, so I just had to. um, It was a very steep learning curve, learning how to create a book and what's inside it is, a bit, is quite interesting as well photos are quite key in the film because um, 
it has sort of very early crime scene photography. Yeah. Doesn't it? Um, we based on, you went down to the it's Black, a bit, did you yeah. go to the Black Museum and looked at the Ripper stuff? No, it was the National Archive. Oh, so we looked at the Jack the Ripper murders a little bit because that was an example of uh, early crime scene photography. Um, Grant and I knew very like straight away that yeah. because there were so many and they're so key that we wanted to do it for real and do it using the original techniques of the era, which was wet plate collodion. This is how we did our photos, which was a huge challenge because it's not just like snapping a digital photo. It is like you have to really think about every shot and then hope it works because it takes about 15 minutes per plate. Just want to end talking about your working working relationship together and how it's developed, but also the environment of the televisual environment that you're working in because it feels like there has been such a huge shift of the quality in television and the way what we or what I as an audience member am mm. watching the level of quality and how much it's increased and how that sort of impacted on your working relationship I don't know I think it's, it's, we've always, always been on the same wavelength in terms of attention to detail yeah. that's never changed yeah. and that's just uh, but it's like we were, people were saying earlier people re-watch things and um like to point things out now so you sort of really have to be on it Every everything has to be I right because th- people pick up on it. I think it's just working with certainly within your own crew it's working with an idea that you that you want to be aiming at a, a certain quality control and and actually imparting what that quality control is, the level of what it, where you want to hit I think that's very, very key, and that, so everybody in the in the team hits it. So you, and I think setting out the tone of where you're going with it. Like I'm going, we want this detail. I want this level of. Uh, um, uh, and I think it's important because, as you rightly point out, the dare I say it, if you look at the big Netflix or the HBO, the, they're they're talking huge budgets, more than most British television can actually punch at. And they're they're raising the bar all the time. We can only do what we can do, but we've we've got to we've got to aim that. If you aim trying to get to ninety five percent, and you hit, you might just get to eighty. But if you aim at fifty, you're sure as heck gonna hit thirty. And that's where you don't want to be there. At least I don't want to be there. Do you I want think, to be there? I think it's interesting when we had the we had a conference call the other day, and you said. Can you maybe talk about challenges that you have? And we said, gosh, every, every single day every, every is a day challenge. Day. And I think that's because we set our standards really high and really push ourselves to the absolute maximum. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I think everybody in the t- and and that's it, why every day is I, a I, you know, the, And if you are part of a team that wants to do that, that's great. <clears> if you don't, then don't, don't turn up. It's not annoying. I want to go and do the best I can do. And you want people to get that and then we'll, we'll, we'll do good work. I think that's kind of key. Whatever you do is do, do good work. Never say that'll do. And never say that'll do. <laughs> say that's the best I can do. Thanks very much to BAFTA and Creative England for organising this event. But most of all, can you please join me in thanking Mary and Grant. <laughs>